0: You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com for more. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner, and we do here daily live streams. You can join us on Telegram, Twitter, or YouTube. We're going out on all three platforms. I cover Bitcoin, macro, from kind of a contrarian side. I'm came to Bitcoin through Goldbug and Austrian economics and background in economics. And now I try to understand macro so that I can understand Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is going to take over the world. And if you guys are interested in that, come along with me, make sure you subscribe, like, uh, all that stuff wherever you're watching this. So welcome to the stream. Okay. So today, man, what did I do today so far this morning? I got out Thursday, Wednesdays stream uh, in podcast form. So if you guys miss a show, you can always go to the podcast feed and listen there. And I got out the post for FedWatch, which is the other podcast that I do on Thursdays, 1230 Eastern with Bitcoin Magazine. And we talk about pretty much the same stuff, but it's a little bit more central bank focused. All right. Today, I wanted to talk about a new piece by Zoltan. It's kind of a new piece, but it's in his old It's along the same lines as his older stuff, where he talks about Bretton Woods 3, he talks about de-dollarization, and all of that. So we're going to read through this uh, Financial Times post that he had. Uh, Then we're going to look into a study and see if we can check out what he's saying, if it's true or not. And then we're finally going to look at this week's uh, treasury auctions, and again, see if what Zoltan is saying is correct. And you guys probably already know that it's not correct. But anyways, that's what I have on deck for today. But before we get into that, let's take a look at prices. The daily for Bitcoin is green on the day, up about half a percent. Man alive, is it just hanging? It is just like out there on a limb. It almost is like, you know, in the old Bugs Bunny when Wiley Coyote runs off the cliff and then he does, he doesn't fall until he looks down. That's almost like the feeling I get right now. I know that some of you in the telegram are very, very bullish. You think this is the repricing event and that would make sense. So the argument there is, let me make sure I'm not muted. Okay. (laughs) I got a, I got a sinking feeling that I was muted. Um, Okay. So the, the argument there is, that Bitcoin is such a life-changing thing and the markets are never like easy for people. They always cause the most amount of pain in either direction that they go. They search for liquidity, right? And so they cause a lot of pain in either direction. And the pain on the upside, the pain is missing out. It's, it's FOMO, right? And so if you, have, if you waited to buy because you thought there was another leg down, then you see this pump and you still haven't gotten in because you're, um, you know, it's going to come back down. I can buy when it hits 19,000 again. And then you don't buy and it keeps going up. So that's the pain on the upside is is missing out. Uh, also, for big institutional buyers, they feel the same thing. They are human beings just like you and I. And when it goes up and they had planned to maybe get in in the second quarter and they now they're they missed it. You know, they missed a 100% move because they didn't get in at the right time. And then they do get in and price drops or price goes sideways for six months or something like that. So uh, the idea behind a repricing event going forward in Bitcoin is that it is so ubiquitous. Everybody knows about it. Everybody's trying to come up with a Bitcoin strategy um, and you you just have to buy and hold because it could go up 100%. In a month, and then it, it goes sideways for six months, you know, uh, or something like that. So y- you have to get in at the right time to uh, catch these repricing events going forward. And, and that would be the most pain. That would be the most missing out by people. Bitcoin's not going to be easy and just go up 1% a day for five years. 2016 and 17, when it just kept marching up in this exponential pattern for a year and a half, I don't think it's going to do that again because that is just too easy to get in. So I think we we will see some sort of hundred percent move at some point and then sideways for six months, then a hundred percent move, maybe drop 25, then a hundred percent, you know, something like that. Um, and so anyway, some of you guys in the telegram at least are sounding like that's what you're thinking is going to happen. Um, if we compare this back to 2019, when we had that, rally off of the bottom you know this is the pre-covid rally that went up about 200 percent. i should go back and measure this trying not to talk when i'm moving the screen because restream cuts out my audio but anyway um okay so this is what we're talking about here and from the breakout to the top it went up 225 percent that could easily happen here today And if we go up 225% from, we'll call this the breakout. We could even call FTX the breakout, but let's say 18,500 was the breakout. 225% gets us up to 60. I can see that happening. I mean, on the chart, it wouldn't even be that crazy if by March we were at 50. You know, that wouldn't be crazy on the Bitcoin chart. So... Uh, Just be ready for these. The best strategy you can have is buy and hold. I would DCA, but I DCA a little bit more on dips. So like if it, the price drops 20%, then I double my DCA that, that month or that week or whatever I'm doing. And um, that that's worked for me. I think that is the best way for people to do it and just hold, because you're never going to be able to pick the tops and the bottoms you, the emotion especially if you don't follow this space a hundred percent like some of us do some crazy people do um if you are just living a normal life your best life and you're not watching Bitcoin constantly and not watching macro constantly then you know it's gonna be impossible for you to say oh I think it's gonna drop another fifty percent before I buy or whatever uh so I would just buy and hold that's the sailor method that's the the main method that Bitcoiners preach out there. And it's the best thing, the best way to evangelize because I don't know, I'm I'm kind of soured to the idea of evangelizing Bitcoin because I mean, you come, if you have to convince people to buy Bitcoin, they're weak hands by definition. So it's, it's not worth convincing them because they're just going to sell the first freaking dip. Right. And then blame you. And then your friendship or whatever relationship you have with this person, uh, especially if it's a family member, for God's sakes, it could be ruined. You know, so it's very dangerous to convince anyone, especially someone that you have a close relationship with, to buy Bitcoin. And so it's, I've just kind of come to that realization over being 10 years in Bitcoin. It's just not worth it. If you have to convince somebody, they're not ready. They're not ready. If you say, oh, I finally convinced my normie friend to buy Bitcoin. Ah, no, you didn't. (laughs) It's harder to convince them not to sell than it is, I guess, to buy initially. But anyway, just some food for thought there. Okay, let's take a look at the dollar is up a little bit on the day green. This is from yesterday. We had some stuff on the charts. So. Green a little bit over 102. We'll see if this is the bounce that I have been waiting for. Uh, this would be ex- a very good place to bounce. I mean, a, kind of a psychological mind f here on the way down. It just kept falling, and it really brings out the do- the dollar bears, which Zoltan is, and we'll get into that piece here in a second. So, yeah, that that would make sense that it's it's been a it was a precipitous rise. And now it's been a precipitous decline and it's going to bounce. It's going to enter a range and I still stick with that. But that is the dollar. Let's take a look at oil first. Oil still struggling to get over 80 and stay over 80. So we'll see where that goes. The last few weeks have been big inventory rises, rises in inventory in oil. And there's just no demand guys. This recession is coming. This global recession is coming. The U.S. is not going to escape a slow time. Okay. But it, I, it there's possibility that it escapes recession like a textbook recession so or an official recession. But the globe won't. There'll be many places in the world that are in deep recession. I think China is one of them. So um, you know, it just... Looks like there's no demand out there in the world right now. And go, looking a year ahead, there's no big boost of demand coming in the next year. So why would oil prices go up now? So that's that's the my oil analysis here. The S&P 500 is up on the day, um, similar to Bitcoin, about a third of a percent. It's looking very green, um, very good off of this bounce. Let's bring up the EMAs. So the golden cross is just days away on the S&P 500. And um, yeah, it's looking very, very strong. We'll see if we get either 25 basis points uh, from the Fed here next week. The top of this market, it's just going to fly. I mean, right now, I haven't been posting to Telegram. Whoops. So right now, let's see. Very close. To these swing highs from back in December, so this is an important horizontal level that we're approaching. I don't know; it's it's very strong. That it's over the 200, it's over the 50. It's a golden cross coming. It's over this long-term downward-sloping trend line. It looks very good, but we do have this last-ditch horizontal resistance. And if that rejects it, we could see it test some lower levels. Maybe test the 200-day again down. Three, 4%. But if it breaks through this level, let's say the Fed only raises by 25 basis points and the psychology of the market is boom, risk on, let's go. S&P is going crazy higher. Bitcoin is going crazy higher. And yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Everything is aligning. The 10-year is still sitting, trying to sit at that 3.5%. It really likes that. That's its happy place. Being pinched here between the 50 and the 200 days. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks. But, you know, if we do have a risk on rally in everything, I don't see a huge impetus to the downside for the 10 year and for a lot of these yields. They're under the Fed funds, which proves that the Fed doesn't control interest rates, doesn't artificially set interest rates. They artificially sent the Fed funds rate, which doesn't really do anything mechanical, right? They don't set interest rates. So this is proving that the Fed doesn't set interest rates, that people are thinking a recession is coming. People are kind of sour on the economy, but it's holding up at 3.5. So we'll see. The harder this drops, the harder the recession will be. And I don't expect a really bad recession. So I don't think the 10-year is going to drop all that much, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised at 25 uh, by the end of the year, something like that. But it's not going back to one like it has in the past. So, okay, that's all for charts. Let's get into Zoltan. I'm pretty sure I posted this in Telegram. It was a couple of days ago. So I'm going to post this again. The headline is, Great Power Conflict Puts the Dollar's Exorbitant Privilege Under Threat. The monetary order is already being challenged by de-dollarization efforts and central bank digital Currencies by Zoltan Pozar. Oh boy, Zoltan is back, baby. He's back. Um, okay, so just in the headline here, exorbitant privilege. I don't think that a global reserve currency in this system is an exorbitant privilege. It's actually an exorbitant burden. The US has exported or outsourced its manufacturing base. We've lived off this dollar system. That's highly elastic. We've pumped up the world. We've debased uh, not only the currency, but we debased our culture. We debased our economy. We debased everything about the United States. It is an exorbitant burden. Everybody thinks, oh, the U.S. has gotten rich because of this exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar. But it's not a privilege, guys. The U.S. was the largest economy in the world in the 19th century. Already in the nineteenth century, pre-World War One and everything, the US was the largest economy in the world with a with a minuscule, you know, share of the population. I I don't know for sure, but I'm gonna guess that the US share of global population has been fairly static, you know, maybe fluctuating between three and five percent of global population. But I could be wrong on that. But anyway, in the nineteenth century, the US was already the largest economy in the world. We were exporters. We were the China of the 19th century. Yeah, we've debased everything. It's an exorbitant burden. I can't wait to ditch this material culture, get back to sound economics, sound family values, sound social values and social norms, raise my kids in in a non-debauched society. And that's what this exorbitant privilege has given us. It's been an exorbitant burden. Just look at the, the funding for NATO. Like the U.S. pays like 90% or something, or 95% of the NATO's bills. We've paid for everything. It's an exorbitant burden. Let's, let's get on to see what Zoltan says here. So he is the head of short-term interest rate strategy at Credit Suisse. Since the end of the Cold War, the world has largely enjoyed a unipolar era. The US was the undisputed hegemon. Globalization was the economic order. And the dollar was the currency of choice. True. Uh, not just since the Cold War, though. You know, since World War II, the US has led the free world in all of this. Of course, there was the Iron Curtain, but that was that economy actually was minuscule compared to the free world economy. I don't know what it was, maybe say. The free world economy was four or five times greater than the Soviet economy, right? The, the economy behind the Iron Curtain. So, even from World War II up to the Cold War, the U.S. was the leader of the free world, or the "quote unquote" free world, the, the Western-led world. And since World War II, we set up all these institutions like the UN, the IMF, the World Trade Organization, the World Court the international rules of the sea, all of these things, all from the U.S.-led order. And so if you want to say that this is the end of the U.S.-led order, which I tend to agree with, it also means probably the end of things like the World Trade Organization, the U.N., NATO. It means the end of the world court, international rules and laws, uh, the international regulation of the sea things like that. That's what it's ending. Okay. People don't understand that they think, oh, well, no, we can just replace Washington with Beijing and then we'll have the same exact thing. No, no, no. This was a very unique period in history during the US-led order of the last 75 years. All right, let's continue. But today, geopolitics once again poses a formidable set of challenges to the existing world order. That means investors have to discount new risks. China is proactively writing a fresh set of rules as it replays the great game, creating a new type of globalization through institutions such as the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRICS Plus Group of Emerging Economies, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a collective security alliance of eight countries. I'll try not to break in too much here, but I have to say something about these things. So the Belt and Road is DOA, it's done. Okay, so they they have a different type of lending strategy than the IMF. And I'm not supporting the IMF, I'm just explaining the difference here between the IMF, how they lend money and how the Belt and Road in China lends money here. So the IMF would go into a country and they say, look, you want a low interest rate of like 5%? We'll give you that loan, but we need some sort of reforms in your country so that we can trust you to have 5%. If you don't want a 5% loan, that's fine. Go out on the open market and get one for 15. All right. But they wanted to grow at 10%, 20%. Like I've said, the last unipolar era was dominated by huge economic gains. And they wanted those economic gains. So they said, okay, we'll do the reforms and we'll take the money from the IMF. Now, China came in and said, well, you don't even have to make those reforms. We'll just give you the money. And how good is that? How good has that performed? Very badly. All of the investments in Belt and Road are uneconomic. They do not pay for themselves. Even inside their own country, they've done all these high-speed rails and stuff, and they're wasting billions and billions of dollars every year running high-speed rail in China. They cannot break a profit. All of these ports that they're building around they built a railroad in was it kenya i think it was in kenya and i mean it's it's underwater it's never made money it's never gone on track to ever make money so th- these investments that they've invested in with Belt and road are uneconomic they are not a way to like create a hegemonic control from from beijing it's it's kind of silly to think that it's not like Capitalists from the West, they looked at Kenya and they said, no, we're racist. We're not going to put a railroad in there. Of course, they didn't say that. They said they'd crunched the numbers. They said, we won't make our money back. We're not going to do it. We can't do it, guys. We're not going to make our money back. But the Chinese said, we don't care. Especially, I mean, they're an authoritarian communist country. Not only can communists not do economic calculation at all, But governments in general are very cost insensitive, right? They don't understand the cost side of economic decisions. So you have a communist government making international investments abroad. How is that ever going to work? How does anybody think that's going to work? And you hear this from sharp economic people. They think somehow the Chinese have cracked the code on communism and government planning that they're going to make all these great belt and road initiative investments. They're not, okay? It's dead already. If they do more, it's just going to be throwing good money after bad. It's not going to build any sort of hegemonic power for Beijing. Uh, BRICS, I don't have a problem with them. Shanghai Cooperation Organization, don't know too much about that really. Uh, It says a collective security alliance of eight countries. Okay, whatever. All right. While under lockdown, Beijing forged a special relationship with Moscow and Tehran. This relationship with Russia, with the unwitting assistance of global warming, is helping extend China's BRI through Arctic shipping lanes. And late last year, we saw the the very first summit between China and the Gulf Cooperation Council, and hence a deepening of China's ties with OPEC+. All of this may eventually lead to one world, two systems. Okay, it's not it's not a one for one swap and it's definitely not just like easy to do this. Okay, so, yeah, you can meet with the GCC, but Tehran has some other issues with that. So they're meeting with Tehran. They're meeting with the GCC. I mean, Moscow has interests in Syria and uh, Turkey and, and places in the Middle East as well. It's also very interesting that people think that Russia and China are going to be long-term friends and allies. They are fundamentally enemies by their creation, by the, their formation, by the way that, you know, where they're situated on the globe. They are rivals, period. They are land powers in Asia. They're going to fight each other. And probably not in that too distant of a of, of future. I mean, didn't they, they had a war just recently. I think it's 79 or something or maybe it was 69. They, they had a war fairly recently, China and Russia. And if you go back in history, probably every 50 years, they have a war in, in the history of Eurasia. So it's not like they somehow are going to make nice for the foreseeable future. No, the only reason why they've gotten together over the last year, uh, year to two years, is because of they have a common enemy, and that is the Davos globalists that sit there in Brussels and Washington. So, yeah, let's uh, continue reading here. If we are drifting from a unipolar world to a to a multipolar world, and if the G twenty fractures into the camps of the G seven plus Australia, BRICS plus, and no, the non aligned. It's possible that these rifts will not affect the international monetary system. Oh, sorry. It's impossible that these rifts will not affect the international monetary system. Growing macroeconomic imbalances in the U.S. further add to these risks. The dollar-based monetary order is already being challenged in multiple ways, but two in particular stand out: the spread of de-dollarization efforts and central bank digital currencies. So this is a Bitcoin channel and. Most of the people watching are going to be Bitcoin type people. So we know the arguments against the CBDC. We know that CBDCs are idiotic, unworkable. They're non-viable right from the beginning. And so if he thinks that CBDCs are viable, that makes me question his ideas on de-dollarization. So anyway, let's continue reading and see what he has to say. De-dollarization is not a new theme. It started with the launch of quantitative easing in the wake of the financial crisis. As current account surplus countries frowned at the idea of negative real returns on their savings. But recently, the pace of de-dollarization appears to have picked up. And we will check that because I have some studies. I have some numbers here. We we have the receipts. We're going to check these and see if there is de-dollarization happening. Over the past year, China and India have been paying for Russian commodities in renminbi, rupees, and UAE dirhams. India has launched a rupee settlement mechanism for its international transaction while, or transactions probably at some typo, while China asked GCC countries to make full use of the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange for the renminbi settlement of oil and gas trades over the next three to five years. With the expansion of BRICS beyond Brazil, Russia, India, and China, the de-dollarization of trade flows may proliferate. So let's take a look or let's uh, talk about this, um, the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange. I think it has 1% to 2% of global energy futures. It's kind of a, a joke. It's already several years old. So it's not like it's just they just launched it the uh, middle of last year and it's already has 2%. No, it's about five years, I think, and it only has 1% to 2%. Nobody wants to use it. All right, Also, if you're settling in uh, renminbi, what are you going to do with that? You, you're not going to well, I guess you could buy exports from China, but most places aren't full of consumers. You know, like uh, another thing that what struck me when I first read through this is that Zoltan believes that you can take the consumers in the United States and the consumers in Europe and you can trade them one for one with consumers somewhere else. That's not going to happen. There's a reason why people want to sell to the United States. You know, we are the marginal buyers in Europe. They're, we're the marginal buyers of things in the world. And you can't have like some great economic alliance between two heavily exporting countries. <laughs> you know? Yes, it sounds great to bash on the United States. It sounds great to bash on the unipolar world for the multipolar world and all this stuff. But when you start talking about, let's look at this puzzle piece and let's see if this puzzle piece fits with this other puzzle piece. You can't just take out, you know, the central piece of the puzzle, rearrange the pieces and make a functioning picture at the end. It doesn't work like this. And so many people fall into this trap. So, okay, let's keep, continue going here. CBDCs could accelerate this transition. China has changed the strategy through which it internationalizes the renminbi. Given that financial sanctions are implemented through the balance sheets of Western banks and that these institutions form the backbone of the correspondent banking system that underpins the dollar, using the same network to internationalize the renminbi may have come with risks. To get around this, a new network Was needed, was needed, okay? Around the world, but particularly in the global East and South, CBDCs are spreading like fast-growing kutzu vines with more than half of the world's central banks exploring or developing digital currencies with pilots or research, according to the IMF. Exploring or developing with pilots and research. So nowhere near launch. I mean, I guess the the Chinese one launched and nobody used it. They had to give people $200 free on their CBDC to use it. And then they used that up and then they stopped using it. And $200 in China is nothing to shake a stick at. Half the people in China make less than $200 a month. And they gave people $200 free or the equivalent, whatever that is in yuan or renminbi or whatever. Um, They gave them $200 equivalent. And they spent it, and that's it. That was the end. They didn't use it. Look at the central bank digital currency in Nigeria. What is it, the e-Naira. They can't get people to use it. It's not viable, these things. And just because half of the central banks are exploring or developing digital currencies or pilots or research doesn't mean that they're barking up the right tree. This is coming from, you can tell that this guy is a huge central planning statist. Technocrat. All that it takes is enough effort to make something happen. This reminds me perfectly of Ethereum as well, and people like you know altcoiners in general. You know, it's if you have the idea, you can build it. Don't you know that it's just a technical problem? It's not a problem with being able to do it. We we just have to write the code. You know, we just have to do it. Of course, they don't have any idea that. You know, you can't make gravity work the other way. Oh, all we need is enough bureaucrats to start planning how to reverse gravity. That's what this reads like to me. No, there there are certain things that cannot be done, that will not work. The way the altcoins got around this this fundamental problem is they just lied. <laughs> they just said it does work, even though it doesn't. And people you know, wanted to speculate and gamble, but people don't want to speculate and gamble with their government, with their currency that they're using for business, that they're using for their daily lives. They don't actually want to gamble with that money because they actually have to buy fricking food, buy their health insurance, buy all this X, Y, Z. They actually have to buy stuff. So they don't want to gamble with their money. So even if the central bank technocrats, which they won't be able to design a a functioning CBDC with all the things that they want, they can't just lie about it because people still won't use it. There's no reason to hold it, just like these altcoins. So anyway, uh, very interesting. Let's continue going. They will be increasingly interlinked. Central banks interlinked through CBDCs essentially recreate a network of correspondent banks that the U.S. dollar system runs on instead of correspondent banks. Think more of correspondent central banks. Okay, very interesting. The emerging CBDC-based network, it's not emerging, people. (laughs) It's not even there. It doesn't exist. Uh, Okay, enforced with bilateral currency swap lines could enable central banks in the global east and south to serve as foreign exchange dealers to intermediate, intermediate currency flows between local banking systems All without referencing the dollar or touching the Western banking system. Okay, that's fine. But I mean, we could look at these countries individually by per capita GDP. We could look at these countries by not just the financing flows, but real economic activity. And yes, they are a lot of these countries in East and Southeast Asia are really breaking out now. But a lot of them were built off of a situation like China was built off of, you know, a, a global credit bubble. And just because you have the ability to use some new money and simulate a functioning financial system doesn't doesn't impart economic activity to you. Just because I can do something doesn't mean that it will happen. It's like build it and they will come. This is the same thing with the Belt and Road. It's the same kind of mindset. All we got to do is recreate the existing financial system, but use different puzzle pieces and it will work the exact same way. It'll be better guys. Can't you see it'll be better because we'll get rid of the United States. We'll get rid of the dollar, this exorbitant privilege. We'll get rid of these, this leech on the system, which is the United States, which doesn't create anything and doesn't do anything. That's the mindset. The problem is they see the United States as a leech when actually the United States has been the keystone. It has been the keystone of the whole system. And when you take the United States out and you start taking the UN out, you start taking the world court out and you start taking the WTO out. Yeah, they can try to replace those things, but it'll take decades, maybe if it ever even works. Think about this. Xi Jinping, hardcore Marxist Leninist. They have concentration camps on their own soil. They don't allow free speech. They have completely uh, controlled internet. They have completely controlled banking. And they want to now be in a trade deal with you, but you have to give them access to all of your shit, all of your systems, all of your networks, your CBDC, your banking system. You You have to use the banking system that they control. Are you going to want to do that? Hell no. And the US has a similar system, but the US, at least there was some form of world court. There was some form of international law. And I'm not saying it was perfect, it definitely was not perfect. And I am definitely not saying that we can go back to that of a functioning international rules based order. I don't think we can. But it's not going to be. The way that Zoltan thinks that it's gonna be some shining example of the global south creating some new functioning system. It's that's not what's gonna happen, it's going to fall apart. Anyway, let's continue reading. Change is already afoot. We're almost done here. Change is already afoot. The current account surpluses of China, Russia, Saudi Arabia are at a record. Yet these surpluses are largely not being recycled into traditional reserve assets like treasuries, which offer negative real returns at current inflation rates. Instead, we have seen more demand for gold, see China's recent purchases, commodities, see Saudi Arabia's planned investments in mining interests, and geopolitical investments such as funding the BRI and helping allies and neighbors in need like Turkey, Egypt, and Pakistan. Leftover surpluses are held increasingly in bank deposits in liquid form to retain much-needed options in a changing world. In finance, everything is about marginal flows. These matter the most for the largest marginal borrower, the U.S. Treasury. If less trade is invoiced in U.S. dollars and there is a dwindling recycling of dollar surpluses into traditional reserve assets such as treasuries, the exorbitant privilege that the dollar holds as the international reserve currency could be under assault. whoop dee doo This is not an exorbitant privilege. Let's just take a look at some of these claims here. So this is a recent study. I think it was uh, this year from was it this year from twenty twenty three? Uh, a recent paper, and here are some figures. So I'm going to pull up this these uh, charts here. The first one here on the left is the foreign exchange reserves. It's over 60% still for the U S dollar. It's been at 60% for 10 years or more, at least since the great financial crisis, the Euro is 20%. So if you put those two together, which is the West, right? So he's talking about the global South and East versus the West, the foreign exchange reserves right now are 80% the West. Or more, because Japan, I would consider part of the West. Japan is, a, is probably the closest ally outside of Europe, maybe even as close as Europe. So it, this is the purple, the orange, and the green all together. You're looking at close to 90% of foreign exchange reserves are Western. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't gone down. I mean, the red here is British pound, and that's even, so that is even getting us closer to 95%. The Chinese renminbi, where is that? That's that blue, tiny-ass sliver. Let's zoom in here. This blue, tiny sliver on the foreign exchange reserves. that's That's the renminbi, and no one cares about it. Absolutely no one cares about it. And actually, looking at all of these numbers, so we have the British pound, the Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, and the Swiss franc. All of those would be considered Western. The only one that would be considered global South or global East would be the Chinese renminbi. And it's a tiny sliver, like one or 2%. Now, what else did I want to look at? External public debt. Let's take a look at this one. External public debt, 75% US dollar, another about 10% from the euro and looks to be about Five to eight percent, something like that, for Japanese yen. How about imports invoicing? It looks to be about sixty percent U.S. dollar, about twenty-five, maybe thirty percent for the euro. And you don't even see the RMB sliver on here. You don't see a rupee sliver. You don't see a ruble sliver. You don't see a Durham sliver. You don't see any of that. I mean, where is this move? that Zoltan and these de-dollarized people are talking about. There is no move. The dollar is remaining as dominant as it ever was. Western currencies are remaining as dominant as they ever were. This is like 2023 data, I believe. Okay, let's uh, take a look at this one. And I'll zoom out so we can see everything on this. I'll share this with Telegram. Okay, so this is reserve currencies, right, the evolution of reserve currencies. The red here is British pound and you can see it was about 85% back at the end of World War II. So that's all the way on the left of this chart is the end of World War II. It's not even up to modern day. I think it goes up to like uh, 15 or 16, 2015, 2016 is on the right-hand side of this chart. Uh, But you can see the dollar, it had about 60% in 1956 and about 60% today. I mean, it's been... It's fluctuated around that, but that's what it's kept at. And again, the euro, the yen, and the pound make up over 90% of reserve currencies, and those are all Western. Zoltan's talking about global south versus global east versus global west. There's a tiny, tiny blue sliver over here of renminbi. Nobody wants it. Okay, and then let's go into the recent treasury auctions because these things just happened this week and this shows that there is still massive massive demand for dollar and dollar denominated debt and before i get into this being a bitcoin channel talking about how strong the dollar is okay the dollar is king my theory here on how bitcoin is going to take over the world is that you can't get away from the dollar but the dollar is this huge giant credit bubble so it's going to be low growth low inflation low growth, low inflation. If you want any growth back, if you want to any dynamism in your economy, you're going to have to go to a new money, but that's not going to the yuan. It's not going to the yen. It's not going to the euro. It's going to Bitcoin. It's something completely outside of the system. As international trust and international cooperation breaks down, like Zoltan is saying, as we go away from a uh, unipolar world, trust breaks down, and you go to a commodity currency which bitcoin is the best sound money currency there is so that is how i tie this in it's not replacing washington with beijing it's replacing the dollar with bitcoin okay uh this was just yesterday a headline staggering demand for seven year paper delivers third monster auction in a row so the bid to cover was 2.69 2.7 oversubscribed. That means for every unit, there was 2.7 bidders out there. And that's how it normally is. People that say, oh, there's demand is drying up for, the U- for U.S. treasuries. Demand is drying up for the dollar. No one wants those treasuries anymore. Every single auction is oversubscribed like this. Every single one. Not, not this high. Of, of course, the, the bid to cover is blowing out right now. But the average is above two indirects for the seven year indirects confirming the pattern observed in the past two auctions seemingly unable to get enough and getting awarded a whopping 77 percent of the auction so these are indirects that means they're foreign buyers foreign buyers bought 77 percent of the seven-year auction that just happened yesterday okay how about the five-year one that happened earlier this week Impressive five-year auction, which not only showed relentless buy-side demand, but but blew away several records. The bid to cover was likewise stellar, surging to 2.6 for the five-year auction. Finally, it was the internals that were truly outstanding with both indirects and dealers setting new records. Specifically, the indirect award, so this is foreign buyers again, they took down 75% of the five year record five year auction. Where is the decline in demand? Where is this de dollarization that Zoltan is talking about? Okay, how about the two year auction that happened on the 24th? Bid to cover confirmed the stellar demand jumping from 2.7 to 2.9. <laughs> the bid to cover was almost 3. For the two-year, the highest going back all the way to April of 2020 at the height of the COVID crash, Indirects, foreign buyers, were awarded 65% of this auction. So where is the slowing demand? These are record numbers, guys. It doesn't exist. Zoltan's whole theory is wrong. Anyway, that's where I'm going to leave it today. Thank you guys for joining Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets. I'm live streaming these on a pretty much a weekday basis. So you can find that on Twitter at Ansel Linder, YouTube, BTC Market Update. All the associated charts and stuff will be on a post on my website, bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash E, the episode number. I believe this is 308. Yeah. So thanks for joining me. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Hope you have big plans. Get out and enjoy uh, friends and family, uh, try to unplug here, get off of social media and all that. But anyway, guys, thanks for joining. I'll see you on the next one. Bye.